Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number one, Ezra, the Introduction, Part 1. The beginning of our introduction to the book of Ezra, which is heavily heavily intertwined with the book of Nehemiah, is going to take us on a little bit different path than you're accustomed to. There's a, a couple of major points I want to make today that has much to do with our personal and communal walk with Yeshua in relation to the state of the world as it stands in our time. And these points I'm going to make flow very naturally from what we will learn in Ezra and Nehemiah over the next many months. Upon the significant events of these two books, a new era is dawning for Israel. Or, shall we say, a new era is dawning for the Jewish people. They had been removed from their homeland of Judah deprived of the temple and its services and all of the vital spiritual and physical benefits and blessings that come from it for about a hundred years. This removal, usually called the Babylonian exile, was a God-ordained and God-orchestrated judgment against his chosen people for their infidelity against him. Yet, this judgment was, as is typical, carried out by human beings. Gentile human beings. But with the passing of time, we now prepare to follow the pious, the zealous Ezra as he leads a contingent of enthusiastic Jehovah worshippers back to Jerusalem from their long stay in a foreign land with this righteous goal of rebuilding the temple, reestablishing the operation and the authority of the Levite priesthood, and thus reinstituting the Torah-based religion, as it appears in the Law of Moses. Now this group represented a small fraction, perhaps 5%, of Jews who lived in the Persian Empire. Why so relatively few? The remainder had adapted to their new homes. They felt no need to migrate to a place, Judah, they had never seen or to remake and recapture a Torah and a temple-based Hebrew religion that most of them had never known. Ezra and Nehemiah are different from others of the Old Testament books. They deal quite heavily with the politics of the day. The problem this presents to modern readers is that while we will watch as each of several of the nations and political groups appear and then they disrupt the reconstruction of the temple and of Jerusalem and they try to use their influence to bring about their own agendas, nothing in the Bible explains very much about who these groups are, why they think, why they behave as they do. We're going to work to flesh that out. Ezra and Nehemiah are technically quite difficult to study, partly because some sections are written in Hebrew, other sections are written in Aramaic. 
And the difficulty is also because the time of history they cover is challenging to sort out. So there is much speculation because what Ezra and Nehemiah are reported to have said and done don't always match with the viewpoints of non-biblical documents from about that same time period. So we have much untangling of this historical timeline to do as we go along to get the best sense of these valuable books. However, before we get into all that, I think it's best to first take some time pause, to reflect, to paint a picture of the spiritual condition and of the circumstances of the Jewish people and of the Middle East in general at the time of Ezra. We're going to quickly find that many of their concerns are similar to concerns that we have today in the 21st century AD. And it could be instructional as to how modern day believers might approach the practice of our faith in such a rapidly changing and imperfect world. A world that is also vastly different from the world of the 6th and 5th centuries BC. Now I mentioned that the Jews had been driven out of their homeland and taken captive some 90 to 100 years or so earlier than Ezra's day. However, not all of that time were they held as captives or even barred from returning to Judah. They were set free by King Cyrus after 70 years in Babylon as Persia rose to power. During all that time away, the Jewish people experienced enormous social upheavals, changes in their culture, significant alterations in the way that they worshipped the God of Israel. And most of those changes were due to circumstances. And then the resultant limitations that from an earthly, from a political standpoint, were beyond their control. And that included the matter of just how observance of their Jewish religion could reasonably continue and in what form. In biblical time, <clears throat> hundred years doesn't seem very long. We're more used to thinking in terms of thousands of years. But from an everyday human perspective, a hundred years is a long time. And perhaps five generations of people lived during that century. Now let me try to illustrate how long of a time a hundred years is. Looking back a hundred years from the year we are currently in, 2014, the Ottoman Empire ruled by Muslims was still widespread and powerful. World War I was still a few years away. The Panama Canal was not yet completed. Most homes in America did not have electricity. The Titanic sank with catastrophic loss of life. And then there was the famed Boxer Rebellion against European influence that occurred in China. Now those of us living today of course have no personal attachment to any of those events and certainly nothing we could call a memory of it. It's hard for us to feel any sense of cause and effect from those times upon our lives, even harder to understand what life and society was like then. 
So as a result of having been gone from Judah for a hundred years, the majority of Jewish people who were alive in Ezra's day naturally had no personal attachment to the land of Judah. Any more than I feel an attachment to the Germany that my grandmother on my mother's side came to America from as a child. I'm an American born in America, not a German born in America. And so from their perspective from from their perspective the Jews born in Persia were Persian Jews, not Judean Jews who happened to live in Persia. Then there's the complication that on my my father's side of the family is an entire different story as that heritage literally goes back to the Mayflower. So how do I explain how many generations removed from Europe I am? The three from my mother's side or maybe the 20 or so from my father's side? Either way, I'm not a European and I do not perceive myself as a transplanted European. But from another perspective, I'm also a Christian. And my matriarchal grandmother was a Christian and her mother was a Christian. And yet, our religious practices must be worlds apart. We even practice them in different languages. These same sorts of complications from intermarriage were present with the Jewish population of the media Persian Empire in Ezra's day. Now we discussed at length to end the book of Esther that in part overlaps with Ezra and Nehemiah's time that even the term Jew had a substantially different meaning at the time Ezra was mustering as many Jews as he could to move to Jerusalem on a righteous mission to rebuild the Holy Temple. A century earlier though, when Judah was overrun by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, a Jew was a Judahite in the sense that a Jew was a citizen of the kingdom of Judah. Most citizens of Judah at that time could also claim that they were members of the tribe of Judah and they were descended from that tribe's namesake and his father Jacob. But many thousands of other full citizens of Judah were from the tribe of Benjamin. So, a Judahite, a Jew, and the days that were leading up to their being conquered by Babylon was akin to ourselves, uh, to, to, uh, to our calling ourselves Americans, or if you're in Europe, Britons, Spaniards. It's mostly about what nation we belong to. While there can be some amount of ethnicity involved, it's more about a chosen allegiance to a land and to a government. Now you fast forward a hundred years from then to the time of Ezra. The Hebrew term that English Bible versions usually translate as Jew was still Yehudi. Yehudi. And it more literally means Judahite. And yet this term had now evolved to more indicate some ill-defined combination of religious belief and ethnicity, for some a family heritage that could be traced back to the former kingdom of Judah. 
For instance, in the book of Esther, we found that many people from various non-Jewish ethnic groups throughout the Persian Empire elected to become Yehudi, Jews, because a Jewess was now their queen. And her Jewish stepfather, Mordecai, had become second in command over the Persian Empire. But obviously these new Jews had no ties whatsoever with the kingdom of Judah. They shared no common Hebrew heritage with those Jews who had a blood relationship with, with Jacob and his son Judah. So their newly declared Jewishness must have had to do with a political affiliation and an allegiance loosely based on religion. It was probably mostly about whose God they decided to worship. In this case, it was the God of the Jews. And then we discussed how the worship of the Jews in Babylon and now Persia, by definition, had to look very different from when they lived as natural-born citizens within their own sovereign Hebrew kingdom of Judah. The major reason for this difference being that the center of all Hebrew worship since Moses had been the house of Yehovah, the tabernacle, and then eventually the temple. But the temple lay in ruins. The priesthood as an organization had been disbanded and delegitimized. Yet, the Jews of the diaspora, the Jews who lived up in Babylon and then Persia, didn't want to give up their worship of, of Yehovah, so they improvised and they adapted. They appointed their own new religious leaders, many, perhaps most, of whom were not Levites. They found ways around their inability to sacrifice to atone for sin, at least they did in their own minds. And they eventually found places to assemble and worship that in time were called synagogues. Whatever it might have looked like that the Jews practiced as their religion in the Persian Empire, it bore little or no resemblance to that of their great-grandfathers who had brought their sheep and their goat sacrifices to the altar at the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And this is because it was impossible to do so. And while it was not called so at that time, this new form of Hebrew religion would create so many new elements and practices that it eventually got its own name, Judaism. So, here's a question for all of us. Should we find as objectionable what these Jews did up in Babylon and Persia by abandoning the ways of the Torah and establishing their own houses of worship and appointing new leaders and devising new ways? Should we look down upon the 95% who had every opportunity and freedom to migrate to the Holy Land, Judah, 
to return to their true biblical religion who chose of their own free will not to because they were satisfied with their new religion their new religious ways with their living conditions in Persia well to help us address that question let's look at the strangely parallel path that Christianity took to get to where it is today to begin it's important to understand that Christianity is not the religion that Yeshua invented when he lived and walked this earth Christ was not the first Christian Christianity is by definition the form of a new religion that Gentiles invented in which Christ is at its center rather the religion of Jesus the Jew was a temple and Torah centered religion just as God ordained and yet in the New Testament we find him regularly visiting synagogues and teaching in them that was the most outward symbol of man-made Judaism as much as we find him visiting and teaching at the temple the most outward symbol of God-ordained Hebrewism to coin a term but consider this as well at no time did the rebuilt temple ever possess the Ark of the Covenant it went missing from the time of the temple's destruction around 600 BC and has never been found since although there are a few who have made some unsubstantiated claims that they've located the ark the temple in Yeshua's day did not have the ark of the covenant in the holy of holies and yet Yeshua never condemned the temple as useless or as an incomplete temple even though he did have little use for the illegitimate priesthood now should this knowledge give us pause or even shake us up a little bit yeah it should but only only to notice that Yeshua was as much a product of his environment he was subject to the realities of his time as were the diaspora Jews in Babylon and Persia as are the Jewish people today as are believers today so did Jesus come to create a new religion perhaps because of the inadequacies of Judaism um, because of an incomplete temple or because of a corrupted priesthood interestingly Yeshua distinctly said he did not come to abolish the prophets or the law and to create a new or replacement religion rather his purpose was to fulfill the law as it existed to bring about the predictions of all those prophets he would follow the laws of Moses perfectly he was what the prophets pointed to he was what the law embodied the perfect heavenly ideal living on earth in flesh yet at the same time 
Yeshua was also a Jew who lived a Jewish life in the Jewish Holy Land within the Jewish society as it existed with all of its flaws and warts. But in time after his death on the cross and upon the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem in 70 AD what with no temple now or priesthood as the focal points for the Jewish religion of any of the several sects it had divided into including those of the way that stream of Jewish religion that Yeshua fostered Gentiles now had an opening to take the way to move it out of the land of its birthplace out of the Holy Land thus we find some of the major Jewish centers of the diaspora in Antioch and Damascus and Corinth and Rome all Gentile cities and Gentile nations become the major hubs of Jesus worship and the number of Gentiles who flock to the truth of the gospel soon overwhelmed the number of Jews who did as well and now Gentiles were in control these Gentiles called themselves Christians. And with this new circumstance of such a staggering numbers advantage, popular Gentile religious leaders took control of these assemblies that were at one time Jewish synagogues and then Jewish influence began to dry up. Soon houses of worship for these new Gentile Christians were differentiated from the houses of worship for Jews and these new places were called churches. Well now that Jews had been pushed out of control of Yeshua worship and now that the centers of this kind of worship were relocated into Gentile nations circumstances changed yet again. In the 4th century AD the Torah-ordained Seventh-day Shabbat was abolished. And first-day Sunday worship called the Lord's Day was established. The first day was also to be a day of rest, something that, had all, that was already existing in the Roman Empire, at least for non-slaves. The seven biblical feasts of Leviticus were abolished by the church and almost immediately a celebration of Christ's resurrection was created based on other contemporary resurrection myths of Tammuz and his consort Ishtar, the fertility goddess. It was natural. These pagan resurrection myths were long established, well accepted among the Romans they were popular. They were woven into society. So it was easy enough for Christianity to simply transfer Jesus to those celebrations because it didn't cause any kind of a disruption. Coupled with the goal to sever any ties to Jewishness, it made perfect sense to the Gentile church leadership and it worked. Well, over the centuries, everywhere it spread, Christianity has adapted to its environment. And these adaptations were significantly diverse enough that it eventually caused a fracturing of the religion into what we now label as denominations. And here we are in the 21st century 
with a Christianity that has almost no connection at all with Israel or with the real Jewish Jesus or his real Galilean Jewish disciples who started the whole thing. And the truth is that like the 95% of diaspora Jews in Ezra's day and in Esther's day, most Christians go merrily along not really seeing the relevance of the ancient biblical origins of our faith. Why? Because what we practice now is all we've known. And we're generally pretty satisfied with it. We don't have a memory of something else. We don't have a longing to challenge our settled doctrines or examine our taken-for-granted holy observances. And yet, yet, in our day, just as it was for Ezra's time, something is afoot. Something about our faith seems to be incomplete. Maybe well off the mark. And many worshipers suddenly yearn to recover our faith roots and the truest possible biblical religion. This is so much like the situation of the Jews of Babylon and Persia that to me it's just eerie. The Jews living in Ezra's day, they weren't the ones who had left Judah and the temple behind. They had been born in Babylon, then in the Persian Empire, under circumstances not of their making. Even if they had some knowledge of the religion of their forefathers, it didn't matter because they were practicing a form of it that worked for their current location and situation and environment and it seemed to fulfill their spiritual needs. And yet, with Ezra as their spiritual leader, a tiny majority, uh, minority rather, of these same Persian Jews thought it was right to leave the comfort of what they had known all their lives. To turn back, turn their backs on their homes, on the religious practices of their friends and of their brother Jews who found perfectly acceptable and worthy in order to try to rediscover the religion of the Bible and to reestablish it in their own lives. And what we find is that their venture was largely unwelcome. It was fiercely fought against and it was sabotaged. And it took many years to accomplish what could have been done in a few months. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks, Ezra and his cohorts just could not understand why their fellow Jews would knowingly want to continue practicing something that was but an inferior band-aid placed over a problem not of their own making, exile, the lack of a temple for worship and instruction and atonement, but this problem had been rectified some years earlier. Now I hope you see where this is leading us. 
1500 years, Christianity has in general taken a pathway that has led further and further away from the true biblical religion and towards a means to deal with our circumstances as they were and as they are, whatever form it takes. And now in our time, there are those few who want to return to our biblical faith roots. Now this is certainly not the first time that this has happened. In fact, those who arrived on the Mayflower came to North America with that intent. They came as outcasts from institutional Christianity in Europe. And today, those of the Hebrew Roots movement and the Messianic movement and some folks of other denominations are facing these same pressures. I don't think it's too strong at all to compare ourselves with the Ezra movement of 2,500 years ago. In fact, this is the reason I took us on this historical venture to begin our Ezra introduction. The parallels are unmistakable. And so there is much we can gain by following what happened with Ezra's and Nehemiah's efforts and we can probably assume that what happened with them is a reasonable expectation of what we can expect is going to happen with us. Ezra and Nehemiah and their followers represented a tiny minority of Jews. Their desire and actions to reestablish the temple and the priesthood were not welcomed by all. Many other Jews saw them as misguided troublemakers, divisive, a threat. Others were bewildered why Ezra and his followers couldn't merely accept the Judaism that had been created since it seemed perfectly fine as is. And as is the way of humanity, if the 5% differ with the 95%, then who's deemed right? Obviously it must be the majority and the 5% are the oddballs, misfits, rebels who need to be reeled in and reformed or thrown out completely. And just as obviously, the Bible holds up Ezra and Nehemiah as doing God's will and upholding God's principles. Naturally, those two are applauded by the Lord and they're disparaged by men. It was no different when Yeshua came and He made His first disciples. Those thousands of Jews who followed Him were seen as misguided rebels, even traitors to the institutional Judaism of their day. And they paid a price. Oh, they paid a price. Many were shunned by their communities and their families. So much so that Yeshua had to remind His flock that in Matthew 10.37 whoever loves his father or his mother more than he loves me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or his daughter more than he loves me is not worthy of me. 
And while Matthew puts this instruction in principle in a positive sense, love, we see the same thought expressed in the negative sense in Luke, in Luke 14.26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and his father and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters and yes, his own life besides, he cannot be my disciple. So we see yet another biblical example that love and hate are anything but emotions that involve intense like or dislike. Rather, in the Bible, love means to actively accept. Hate means to actively reject. Ezra and Nehemiah did not have an intense dislike for their fellow Jews of the Persian Empire who chose to remain behind with this new, largely man-made, doctrinal-based religion of Judaism, but they did reject some or most of those beliefs. And as most Messianics and Hebrew Roots folks have learned, rejecting some traditional Christian doctrines and belief can be interpreted by family and friends as personally rejecting them. It's painful. It can be agonizing. It can disrupt our lives. And yet, as we just read, Christ said, expect it. And without equivocation, He told us what our choice ought to be when we're faced with it. Then had the diaspora Jews of Ezra's day, that 95%, actually abandoned God? Not really. Had they abandoned His biblical ways? Replaced it with something else that satisfied them? Yes, mostly. Were they harboring an evil intent when they did this? I don't think so. Was it arrogant and know-it-all for Ezra and Nehemiah to break away and to try to reestablish the temple and the priesthood to reinstitute the Torah commandments as their religion? No. Would they get it right and recreate the perfect and ideal Torah and temple-based biblical religion? No to that as well. And that's because it wasn't humanly possible given the circumstances. Hebrew roots and Messianic believers, that's the same dilemma that we face. And as right as we are to go against the tide and to work to reestablish a true Bible-based religion that in incorporates the Torah of God as well as the New Testament of Yeshua, don't ever think that we're going to get it completely right or that we're ever going to possess all the truth. We, like Ezra, are desiring to go back and to recover something that we'll never be able to fully restore until Messiah comes. And that's because the circumstances we live under no matter where we reside on this planet are stacked against us. And this world as it is cannot accommodate the perfect heavenly ideal of the Bible-based religion that God gave us so long ago. So, we'll have to do the best we can. 
recover the most we can and do so without apology. But with the greatest love towards our brothers and sisters in the Lord who are not with us on this journey and with the greatest courage and willingness to suffer the slings and arrows that are going to be hurled at us. God gave Ezra and Nehemiah the desire and the vision and the spirit to take on the seeming impossible. And He will give it to us as well if we stay faithful to our purpose and not succumb to those occasional fears and discomforts. But we must also never think that this desire that we have to recover the true biblical faith, to to love Israel, to support and to woo the Jewish people to their own Messiah is because we have each somehow conjured it up from within us. For his own good reasons, having nothing to do with our merit or worthiness, God has miraculously put this desire and spirit into us. It's from the outside in. Our only job is to say yes. And then to move forward under his direction. The outcome is not ours to decide. This now leads us to the next very real issue that faced Ezra and Nehemiah and faces Hebrew roots and Messianic believers. Can we do all of God's Torah if we but exercise enough faith and move forward with an iron will. The rabbis say no to this. And much of Christianity says no to this. In fact, much of Christianity says that either the law is abolished or, in a variation of that same thought, they say that there are some Torah laws that cannot be followed, then that means we have no obligation to follow any of them. And the usual logic for that thought process comes primarily from a passage from the book of James. James 2.10 says, For a person who keeps the whole Torah yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of breaking them all. You've heard that. So the mainstream conclusion is that since we can't possibly keep about one-third of the Torah commandments because they require a priesthood and a temple, which don't exist, then we can just set aside the rest of the Torah as well. In fact, the rabbis generally agree with this. And that is the reason for the creation of halakha, rabbinical law. Rabbis will tell you honestly, they don't operate under the Torah of Moses. They operate under halakha. Yet, Yeshua warned us against that line of thought. In Matthew 5.19 he says, So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so is going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches them, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now first notice, Christ does not say that a determination to not do the law prohibits one from the kingdom of God. 
essentially he is describing two categories of believers. Those who do the law, and he says God sees them as the greatest, and those who do not do the law, and God sees them as the least. So believers, you don't lose your salvation if you don't follow the law. But you do gain the status of least in the kingdom of heaven. The reality is, no one in Christ's day could obey all the law either. For a number of reasons. Not the least of which, there was no ark of the covenant in the temple. The holy of holies was empty. So the temple couldn't be cleansed on Yom Kippur. Because the best the high priest could do was to enter and sprinkle blood on the floor where the ark should have been sitting. Was it his fault that there was no ark there? No. It had gone missing since Nebuchadnezzar had taken that, taken the temple 600 years earlier. So what did the high priest do? The best he could. The Jews weren't allowed by the Romans to enforce the penalties of the law for idolatry or adultery. Those penalties were death. So what did the Jews do? The best they could. They shunned those who were guilty. Now I'm asked nearly daily, since it's self-evident, we can't obey all the laws of the Torah due to circumstances. Are we obligated to follow any? And if we are, which ones? Some of the laws are so enmeshed in Hebrew Middle Eastern society that they are near impossible, if not absolutely impossible, to observe. And since breaking one Torah law is like breaking them all, says James, then most Christians and Christian leadership says, well, why bother to obey any of them? Isn't that just legalism and vanity? Let me begin to answer that by straightening out a misconception about what James said concerning keeping the whole Torah but by breaking one point we break it all. It's merely the other side of the coin of the statement that we find in Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God God, or if another Bible short of earning God's praise. Just the other side of the coin of that. The Romans statement is certainly true and it's pivotal in understanding our need for a Messiah. However, it in no way implies that all sins are the same or that all have sinned equally. Thus, James says, all you can say, you're fully Torah observant, but in reality, if you just break one commandment, any commandment, no matter how minor, and if you're depending on scrupulous Torah observance to save you, then logic says you're going to fall short. Of course, neither he nor Yeshua ever drew the conclusion that as a result of this truth that we just throw away the Torah and do whatever we want. Even going back to Mount Sinai. Follow me on this. 
Even going back to Mount Sinai and the day and the hour, the law was given to Moses. Some of the law couldn't be kept due to circumstances. How could they give first fruits offerings if there was no first fruits? How could they offer sanctuary to manslayers and city of refuge, cities of refuge if they had no cities? How could they offer or leave harvest for the poor if there was no harvest? Why couldn't they do those things along with several more at that time? Circumstances beyond their control. So does that mean that since one Torah law could not be precisely followed, the whole law became invalid? Which in turn means that probably at no time in Israel's history did circumstances allow them to do every last commandment precisely as commanded. So does that mean then that never in the history of Israel was the law of Moses in force? You see where this leads? Of course it doesn't mean that. Because from the instant God gave Moses the law, the Israelites were punished when they broke one law or another. So in God's eyes, the law was certainly in force. Besides, the entire point of needing a Messiah is to pay for our trespasses against the law. The trespasses are things we call sins. So, what did the most pious of Israel do when laws could not be obeyed or they couldn't be obeyed precisely as ordained? They did the best they could. And that doing the best you can does not mean doing what you want. It means doing all that reasonably can be done. And that begins with understanding the principle behind each law and commandment. So that when we can't carry out a commandment in letter, we can in spirit and in principle. Can we today fully obey the laws to observe the seven biblical feasts? Not in letter, but we certainly can in spirit and in principle. Can we take adulterers and idolaters in Western society and take them outside and stone them to death for their crime? No, because that is murder in our modern societal system, even if it shouldn't be. But we can reject the act as wrong and stay far clear of unrepentant adulterers and idolaters. Can we bring first fruits of our field harvest of our herds and flocks to the Lord at the temple? No. Almost none of us have fields and flocks. But we can take the first fruits of our incomes to our place of worship and give them for use in supporting the institution, for furthering the cause of Christ, for comforting Israel, because it's the best we can do. Such was the situation for Ezra and Nehemiah, both. And as they began that recovery 
operation of the temple and priesthood. That's all they could do. And even when they were completed, the best they could do was the best they could do. Such was the same situation for the Jews before Christ and after He died and was resurrected. And such is our situation today. And it is in this light that we need to frame what we're soon going to read and study in the book of Ezra. Perfection was always the goal, but it was never going to happen. In fact, Christ said this in His Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Ezra and Nehemiah were too spirit-filled and wise not to know before they ever began that they were never going to achieve perfection in their endeavors. But they would die trying for perfection. Which is what we should all strive for as redeemed people. The results of our efforts are in God's hands and you know what? Our failures are already paid for by our Savior. We must always do the very best we can. And as believers, the best we can is to obey as much of the law, the commandments of God, as guided by the Holy Spirit within the circumstances of the society in which God has placed us. See, we have a choice. We can take Ezra's path or we can take the path of those Jews who opposed him. We're going to continue with our introduction to Ezra next week.